This is Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Peter Clotin. Here's what's coming up. The state used to be a safe haven from the conflict in Khartoum and is a hub for WHO's operations. Due to security concerns, WHO has temporarily altered its operations in Al Jazeera. That's WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus on the continued spread of Sudan's conflict, including half a million more people displaced from Al Jazeera state in the past month. Also, South Africa today accused Israel of committing genocide against the Palestinians. An Al-Shabaab militant captured a United Nations helicopter after the crew had to make an emergency landing. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. As U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken prods Israel with the prospect of Saudi recognition in a bid to make it curb combat operations in Gaza and accept a path to Palestinian statehood, Saudi Arabia itself says such normalization doesn't come without a two-state solution. Dale Gavlak in Amman reports the pressure is on Israel to take meaningful steps. Analysts say a chief goal of the Biden administration has been the normalization of ties between Israel and Saudi Arabia, after Israel established ties with United Arab Emirates and Bahrain in 2020 as part of the Abraham Accords. Saudi Ambassador to Britain Prince Khaled bin Bandar told BBC Radio 4 this week the kingdom has wanted peace with Israel since the Arab Peace Initiative of 2002 and before but not at the cost of the Palestinian people. We've been at this for a long time and willing to accept Israel for a long time. It's a reality that's there that we have to live with. We can't live with Israel without a Palestinian state. Before the Gaza war, Bandar said the Saudis were close to normalization, therefore close to a Palestinian state, emphasizing that one doesn't come without the other. Analyst Nicholas Harris of the Washington-based New Lines Institute says the Saudi price for recognition has risen. The question is, will Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu accept the establishment of a Palestinian state? Harris says Saudi de facto ruler Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's constituency is with the kingdom's youth. Become, generally speaking, strong supporters of the Palestinian cause over the course of this latest conflict. And it's very clear now that there's incredible frustration in the Gulf, including among the Emiratis, Bahraini, and others, with Netanyahu himself. They had cut a deal with Abraham Accords, example, of taking a risk on Netanyahu. They are now feeling as if the chance they took might have been the wrong one. Harris says the far-right policies adopted by the Netanyahu coalition, such as doubling down on the idea that there won't ever be a Palestinian state, talk about expanding settlements in the West Bank and creating new settlements in Gaza, are causing anxiety, not only among Arab states, but in Washington. Writing in Axios, Israeli journalist Barak Ravid said the demands from Saudi Arabia align with those from the Biden administration. He points to remarks U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken apparently told Israeli leaders this week. Saudi Arabia wants to normalize relations with Israel after the Gaza war ends, but it won't agree to any deal if the Israeli government doesn't commit to the principle of a two-state solution, Ravid wrote. 
Ravid adds that Blinken also made it clear that Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries won't get involved in day-after solutions for Gaza, mainly reconstruction, without a path to a future Palestinian state. Ravid writes that if Netanyahu gets on board, he could potentially get a historic peace deal under his name. But if he doesn't, he is likely to be left on his own to take care of the crisis in Gaza. Del Gavlak, VOA News, Amman. Today, South Africa accused Israel of committing genocide against the Palestinians and asked the United Nations top court to urgently order a halt to the country's military operation. Israel vehemently denies the allegations. South African lawyers said during the opening argument in the International Court of Justice in the Netherlands that the latest Gaza war is part of decades of oppression of the Palestinians by Israel. Tembeka Nkukaitobi is one of South Africa's lawyers at the ICJ. Israel has a genocidal intent against the Palestinians in Gaza. That is evident from the way in which Israel's military attack is being conducted, which has been described by Ms. Hassim S.C. It is systematic in its character and form the mass displacement of the population of Gaza, headed into areas where they continue to be killed, and the deliberate creation of conditions that, quote, lead to a slow death, unquote. There is also the clear pattern of conduct, the targeting of family homes and civilian infrastructure, laying waste to vast areas of Gaza, and the bombing shelling, and sniping of men, women, and children where they stand, the destruction of the health infrastructure, and lack of access to humanitarian assistance. South Africa has long backed the Palestinian cause, likening Israel's control over Palestinian territories to the history of apartheid that denied black South Africans equal rights. The current conflict began October 7th when Hamas-led militants from Gaza attacked communities in Israel, killing about 1,200 people and taking more than 240 hostage. Since then, Israel's military offensive in the territory has left more than 23,000 people dead, the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry says. Outside the court, there were scores of protesters, including many supporting Israel. Among them was Bernard Jazz. If anybody did a genocide, then it's Hamas. And what happens in Israel is a reaction. What happens to the Palestine is a reaction what every other country would have done if his own people were so much uh, challenged. Israel has said it is waging war against Palestinian militants, not the Palestinian people. Israeli Foreign Ministry spokesperson Leo Hayat today said South Africa's case ignored, quote, the fact that Hamas terrorists infiltrated Israel, murdered, executed, massacred, raped, and kidnapped Israeli citizens, unquote. The United States and other allies have backed Israel's campaign to eliminate Hamas as a threat. They also have repeatedly called on Israel to do all it can to protect civilians and have pushed to get more desperately needed food, water, and medical supplies into Gaza. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has been in the Middle East this week, pushing efforts to halt fighting and move toward creating a lasting peace. The ICJ is expected to hold several days of hearings in the case, but the ruling may not come for months. Israel has yet to present its defense before the court.
Al-Shabaab militants captured a United Nations helicopter carrying two Somali men and several foreigners when it made an emergency landing in an area controlled by the Islamic group. Reuters says the aircraft encountered a problem shortly after taking off from Beledouin City in central Somalia before it landed near Hendere village, bordering the Galgud region. In addition to the passengers, a military source says it was also carrying medical supplies and it was supposed to transport injured soldiers. A United Nations assistance mission in Somalia later confirmed there had been an incident involving a UN-contracted helicopter that was conducting a medical evaluation. Somalia's government did not immediately respond to requests for comments. The plane taking football players from Gambia to the Ivory Coast for the Africa Cup of Nations had to turn around just nine minutes after takeoff and make an emergency landing as passengers began falling asleep from lack of oxygen and cabin pressure. Gambia squad set off from Banjul yesterday on a short trip to Yamosukru where they will play their opening two group games. Gambia coach Tom St. Fled said the pilot luckily recognized the problem. A state from the Gambia Football Federation said preliminary investigations indicated that was a loss of cabin pressure and oxygen. St. Fate said his players were still struggling with nausea and headaches today, but they were due to depart at 4 p.m. local time. Gambia played the opening Group C game in Yamosukro on Monday against defending champions Senegal. <laughs> The World Health Organization warns that many people caught in conflict-driven health emergencies in Sudan and Ethiopia are at risk of dying because life-saving humanitarian aid can't reach them. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva. WHO officials say they are concerned that the world focus on the catastrophe unfolding in the Gaza Strip is diverting attention away from the plight of millions of people suffering from increasing violence, mass displacement, and the spread of diseases in Sudan and Ethiopia. In a briefing Wednesday, WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus said the situation in Sudan continues to deteriorate after nine months of conflict. In the past month, half a million more people have been displaced from Al Jazeera state due to spread of the conflict. The state used to be a safe haven from the conflict in Khartoum and is a hub for WHO's operations. Due to security concerns, WHO has temporarily altered its operations in Al Jazeera. Even before the conflict between the Sudanese armed forces and paramilitary rapid support forces erupted in mid-April, many people in Sudan suffered from food insecurity. Tedro said the situation has become unimaginably worse. An estimated 3.5 million children under five, one in seven, are acutely malnourished and more than 100,000 are suffering from severe acute malnutrition, requiring hospitalization. At the same time, Sudan is suffering from an outbreak of cholera with around 9,000 cases and 245 cases. Tedros said Ethiopia's northwestern region of Amhara has been badly affected by conflict since April. He said the Internet in the region is cut off, preventing aid agencies from communicating with each other and with the Ethiopian authorities. Restrictions on movement are impeding the provision of humanitarian assistance. Fighting is affecting access to health facilities, either through damage or destruction, roadblocks, and other obstacles. Conflict Drought 
and displacement are driving widespread hunger and disease outbreaks, including media reports of near-famine conditions in Tigray and Amhara. The WHO chief is appealing for unimpeded access to the affected areas so humanitarian agencies can assess the needs and respond accordingly. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. And you are listening to African News Tonight. I'm Peter Clote in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see VOAAfrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out VOAnews.com. The biggest electronic show in the world is going on this week in the U.S. city of Las Vegas. Viewer journalist Tina Train is there and she tells my colleague Kate Pound Dawson the show this year highlights how technology now is everywhere, not just on your phone or computer. So CES used to stand for the Consumer Electronics Show. And now it just goes by CES. And that's pretty telling because this consumer technology trade show has become so much more than just consumer electronics. You know, it wasn't that long ago that the main items on the show floors were the 3D TVs, the HD TVs, the uh, latest in laptops, tablets, phones. And now um, it really is so much more than just consumer electronics. Obviously, technology is woven into nearly every aspect of our our day-to-day lives, and you can really see how that's translated at CES. Um, One of the executives I spoke to uh, summed it up as, you know, every company nowadays is a tech company. And that's so true, I think, for companies that you would never expect to see uh, just a few years ago at CES who now have a continued presence like John Deere, for example, is a, a tractor company for farmers, but they've incorporated the latest in AI and uh, autonomous uh, driving technologies into their tractors. And so they're here showing off uh, the latest and how that can can help farmers. You have L'Oreal and they're incorporating technology into some of their uh makeup offerings in um, offering a device that can help people, disabled people who have shakiness or experience tremors in their hand to help them apply makeup more smoothly um, with a device that's kind of similar to a, a gimbal, which can hold cameras and prevent shakiness in cameras. This is kind of like a handheld device that you can insert your lipstick in and apply it with, without any shakiness. With all these companies, this sounds like it's a big deal. What? Give me an idea of this, the scope. Yeah, there were. Uh, there's an estimated 130,000 visitors who are uh, expected to come this year, and that sounds like a lot, but it's actually uh, lower than some pre-COVID. Um, attendance numbers, but still it is a massive show. And we're talking about 12 different venues across Las Vegas, um, across 12 different uh, event spaces. You're t- you think about the huge convention show floors um, and they're, t- they're just packed with people. What I'm able, what one person is able to see uh, in one day is really a fraction of the entire show because you have uh, over 4,000 exhibitors um, who've come to Las Vegas. This is a a total, they're saying, of over 
185,000 square meters of show space. So you can imagine um, how much walking you're doing in one day and just navigating the logistics of getting from one venue to the, another venue is uh, can be uh, an ordeal. In all this walking, all these exhibits, has there been anything that you that's caught your eye or that is popping up over and over different themes that are really dominating? Yeah, I think in keeping with the theme of tech becoming just uh, a little bit more invisible and more integrated into everyday life without having to for consumers to really think about it. I visited a, a demo area where there was a technologies geared towards the elderly and the aging, and they're calling it age tech, different devices that can help caretakers and uh, children uh, monitor their parents, for example, at home without being invasive, without, um, uh, you know, touching on their privacy. And so, for instance, a, uh, a wireless monitor at home, which uses radar to actually measure things like resting heart rate based on uh, the uh, waves that your body gives off naturally. So less cameras that would be invasive to privacy, but more kind of silent monitors. That was VOA's Tina Train speaking with editor Kate Pound Dawson from CES 2024 in Las Vegas. China's top diplomat Wang Yi will visit Egypt and Tunisia this week as part of a four-country Africa tour. Wang's visit to Egypt will follow that of U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who is set to meet President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi in Cairo for more talks aimed at containing Israel's war against Hamas. The French news agency AFP says no details were given on Wang's intended agenda in Cairo. However, President Xi Jinping has called for an international peace conference to resolve the Israel-Hamas conflict. Wang's Africa trip, which will also include Togo and Cote d'Ivoire, will take place from January 13 to 18. From January 18 to 22, Wang will visit Brazil and Jamaica. It continues a 34-year tradition of Chinese foreign ministers traveling to Africa on their first trip of a new year. China is the leading player in Nigeria's construction industry, according to the Chinese embassy in Abuja. However, Nigerian contractors and engineers say Chinese firms force them out of major contracts. Al-Hassan Bala reports from Abuja, Nigeria, in the story narrated by Steve Baragona. Engineer Saeed Magari is a local contractor working on-site in Abuja's booming construction industry. But Magari says the presence of large Chinese construction companies in Nigeria has limited local builders like him to smaller residential housing projects. And a lot of our local contractors don't have that capacity to compete with those foreign contractors because they have the expertise, they have the experiences, they have the technical equipment, as well as the financing options. So these are threats to our local contractors. That's why our local contractors are looking at small residential, private projects. Chinese companies have moved in to fill the gap. As of September 2021, Nigeria's debt to China is $4.1 billion, mainly for infrastructure projects, according to Nigeria's Debt Management Office. Development consultant Jide Ojo believes Chinese loans are a contributing factor forcing the government to give Chinese companies construction projects. China will give you the loan. But we also state in the terms and conditions of the loan 
that they need to bring in their own expertise and their own uh, infrastructure to execute the project. The fear is that if we fail to service those loans, uh, future government may run into problem and have some of those assets seized. Authorities say loans from the Chinese government were predominantly used to enhance infrastructure. But president of the Nigerian Society of Engineers, Tasu Saeed Gidari Wudil, says the Nigerian government should create an environment to support local contractors. Government should deliberately invest in our own local contractors. How do they invest? Just give us jobs and challenge us. VOA reached out to the Chinese embassy in Nigeria and CCEC, the Chinese-owned construction company, for comments. But inquiries and interview requests went unanswered. But the Chinese ambassador to Nigeria, Choi Jianchuan, said in a statement that his country is the leading contributor to the country's infrastructure development. But for engineers like Magari, the dominance of Chinese construction companies is pushing away Nigerian talent as some contractors leave looking for better opportunities elsewhere while others work in other sectors. One of the challenges we have are that you are not giving chances, opportunities for training, mentorship, participation for these, our local and young growing people. For now, Magari says he and his colleagues will have to focus on building homes. For Al-Hassan Bala in Abuja, Nigeria, Steve Barragona, VOA News. In the drought-stricken southwestern U.S., Native American tribes are trying to secure water rights pledged over a century ago. Matt Dibble has the first story in our five-part series, River at Risk. The Navajo Nation is the largest reservation in the U.S., and the Colorado River runs right along its western border. But for decades, the tribe has been unable to access water from the river. With other water sources drying up in the mega-drought affecting the southwest, Many Navajos, like Ronald Atakai, now travel long distances to purchase water. How often do you guys have to come and do this? Twice. Twice a day? Yeah. We don't have running water. We have to haul water. The long drive to the water station in northern Arizona costs $30 in gasoline each day. But this family, and many others in the western Navajo reservation, have no other option to get water. The tribe estimates that over one-third of the homes on its 71,000-square-kilometer reservation lack running water. The 1922 agreement dividing the river's water between seven states also acknowledged the water rights of 30 Native American tribes. But the agreement failed to determine the amount of water each tribe should receive. Determining legally what that share should be is known as quantification, and must be settled with the state where the tribe resides. The Navajo Nation has successfully negotiated Colorado River rights with Utah and New Mexico, but has yet to reach a settlement with the state of Arizona. There may not be much incentive for the state to settle, says law professor Heather Tanana, who is also a Navajo Nation member. Tribal water rights uh, count against the state's portion of Colorado River water. So each time a tribe is settling out some water rights in Arizona, it's gonna count against Arizona and their portion. Total tribal water rights would account for about a quarter of the river's average flow, which is more than what most states get. But without quantification agreements or infrastructure to move the water, the water due Native Americans benefits other users, 
namely cities and big agriculture, helping sustain a system that was over-allocated from the very beginning. Some tribes, like Arizona's Gila River Indian community, have opted to leave some of their share of Colorado River water in Lake Mead in return for federal funding to secure water from another source. That's Matt Debo's story. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Peter Clotty in Washington. For all the latest development on the continent 24-7, visit our website at viewafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, David Vandy, and our engineer, Saida Hamdoun, thanks for choosing the Voice of America. Music.